Hello, listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And this is Station to Station. It is not, but I like that name. What is it? This is Armchair Apocrypha. That's true. Okay. So this is the podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Possibly, hopefully true stories. <laughs> if not, they're great tales. Yes, very good tales. Um, how was your week? You were, uh, <laughs> you were just telling me a story about um, something happening at work. Yeah, things breaking down. Things breaking down. It's like, can't brew coffee, <laughs> can't do this, can't do that. At some point you just got through your hands up in the air and we're like, we're trying! Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, so what actually happened? A, a pipe burst? Nope. No? There, there's no re- rhyme or reason to it. Like it those holes are down. there. Water kept coming out. Just had to turn off the valve and the breaker to it, and hopefully they'll figure out what's wrong. The electricians. Hopefully. There's no re- like seriously. Someone just walked by and said, um, "There's water everywhere," <laughs> and then we eventually figured out something had happened. No one had been touching it. Mm-hmm. It was all by itself. Got a drink to that. I was like, oh my gosh. And then one of your employees had a um, uh, truth truth uh, test. What's it called? Polygraph test. Polygraph test. test. <laughs> yes. And it sounds very intimidating. <laughs> and I don't think I would enjoy one. What happens? They were asking her some really intense questions. Yeah, yeah. And then they thought she was lying and she didn't understand. I think it was part of like the game to get <laughs> the job that she got. I still can't get over it. Yeah. Have you ever taken a polygraph test? I've never taken a polygraph test. I haven't either. I've told you my theories. It'll show that I'm lying about absolutely <laughs> everything. Like, I'll just be like a little nervous wreck. Yeah. Like, she's got so many secrets. She's probably killed somebody. Yeah. It would show like I was involved with the murder of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't. I swear. Were you involved with the death of Princess Diana of Wales? Uh, no. I was, I was eleven. Four? Wait, how old was she? I think it was a, a John Mulaney joke where oh. he was like, um, I'm 11 and also in Wisconsin. <laughs> and also in Wisconsin. We have proof. Okay, you're right. <laughs> I did it. I don't remember it, but I did it. <laughs> um, how yeah. was your week? Uh, it was fine. We've just been uh, bonding with the dog, mm-hmm. uh, sending out job applications. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's been pretty low-key. Uh, I'm playing through Yakuza 0 right now. Oh, yes. I've been watching you play that. Yeah. It's interesting. It looks uh, interesting. <laughs> I have questions about the design process of the Yakuza games, because they all take place in the same, like, um, area of Tokyo. <laughs> it's all, all six games all take place in this one specific area okay. of Tokyo. Um, but they have, like, sub-stories, which are sometimes interesting and sometimes really gross. Uh-huh. Um, like, when I was playing through uh, Yakuza Kiwami, which is a remake of the first game, there's just this entirely transphobic um, mm. subplot where uh, you get uh, called over by uh, a sex worker, um, and as you're, like, going off into the park with her or whatever, she stabs you and ah. reveals that she's actually a man in a dress. And ah. then her um, her boyfriend, quote unquote, comes in, um, and you fight with her boyfriend. And then at the end of it, it reveals it's revealed that the boyfriend is actually a girl in a suit, um, and it's very very confusing um, why that was in a major game. What's wrong with you, Sega? I don't know. Um, and then in this one, I just unlock the uh, the cabaret club. So I've been running cabaret games. Ooh la la! Yes, 
Um, last night, I got to the Japanese Catfight Championship, um, which luckily you don't have to play very much, except if you want to get a trophy. Um, but I'm like, this is a very adult thing in this game mm -hmm. by Sega, who usually doesn't do very adult games. Yeah. You might uh, hear our puppy grooming himself over there. Yeah. Um, so cute. Because this is the opportune time to do that. Yep. <laughs> Just chilling for last hour and now he's yep. like, oh, gotta do things. Fine. Mm. So you ready to get into the episode? I'm so ready. Cool. I have a long one today. <gasps> I had it. Snap, crackle, pop. I'm so excited. I'm going to put my feet down and listen. <laughs> I had it prepared for the next um, uh, Martyrs, Mysteries, and Murders volume. Let's not hold our breath on uh, that. So, <laughs> But I don't know when Mary is ever going to be over here again. Is so. that her name? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it started with an M. You just saw her on Tuesday for like an hour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she showed up at our trivia group um, about an hour and a half after we had started trivia. Yeah. She did give us some answers, though. So um, so my story is about Anime Aquash, um, who was a First Nations activist from Nova, Sco no Nova Scotia in Canada, who moved to Boston in the 1960s, where oh. she joined the American Indian Movement. Are you stretching? <laughs> Sorry, I am totally listening to you, I promise. Um, her, uh, her Mi'kmaq name was uh, Naguset Isk. Um, she was born uh, in uh, 1945 and spent her childhood in the Mi'kmaq First Nation at Indian Brook R Reserve in Shubanakade, Nova Scotia. Okay. Um, her mother was Mary Ellen Pictou. So and we're her in fathers, Canada. Yes, right now we are in Canada. Okay. Her mother was Mary Ellen Pictou and her father, Francis Thomas Levy. Uh, she had two older sisters, Mary and Becky Pictou, and her younger brother, Francis. Pictou and her si siblings received their early educations on the, res uh, on the reserve. Um, in 1962, Pictou and her first husband, James Maloney, moved together from the reserve to Boston. They had two daughters together, Denise, born in 1964, and Debbie, born in September 1965. Nice, nice. Oh. In 64 and 65, mm -hmm. very, very close in age. Very close together. Uh, they married in 1965, um, the same year that Debbie was born, but they divorced in the, mid, in, uh, mi in the middle of 1970. So about 10 years. About five years after the daughter was born. Oh, I thought they, I think you said they got divorced, though. They got divorced in mid-1970. And then, Okay. In the middle of the year 1970, not in the 1970s. Oh, oh, okay, I was thinking, yeah, like 1975, <laughs> 76, okay, I got you, five years. Yes. So 1965 to 1970. 19, middle of the year of 1970, gotcha, yes. I'm on board with you now, <laughs> keep going, proceed. <laughs> um, in Boston, Pictou began to meet uh, urban American Indians and other First Nations people from Canada. In 1968 and 1969, she met members of the American Indian Movement. Um, Scratching on your door. Is he in my room again? No, he's trying to get into your room. Great. Um, Mercury, you're, you're not very professional. I'm Shush. just saying. Keep it down over there. <laughs> um, she met members of the American Indian Movement, or AIM, um, which was founded in Minneapolis, uh, who were organizing among urban American Indians. What's he doing? Um, well, he did that this morning where he scratched where he knows where his food is. 
Mercury. <laughs> hey. Come here. You're not hungry. You got fed today. We did feed him dinner, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I fed him while you were out. Nope. <laughs> and now he's going for a wine. Um, Pictou became involved in teaching uh, the... Pictou became involved in the Teaching and Research and Bicultural Education School, or Tribes Project, um, a program in Bar Harbor, Maine, to teach young American Indians about their history. On Thanksgiving Day in 1970, AIM activists in Boston held a major protest against the Mayflower II celebration at the harbor by boarding and seizing the ship. Really? Um, Pictou helped create the Boston Indian Council, now the North American Indian Center of Boston, to work to improve conditions for American Indians in the city. Mercury, you are so distracting. (laughs) All right, we got this. You're lucky you're cute. In 1972, Pictou participated in the Trail of Broken Treaties March of American Indian Activists to Washington, D.C. Protesters occupied the Bureau of Indian Affairs National Headquarters and presented a list of 20 demands to the government. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, but more than half of them dealt with the ability to demand and form new treaties with the American government, while others dealt with things like health care, housing, employment, education, and religious protections. They also demanded abolishing the Bureau of Indian Affairs and replacing it with an Office of Indian Relations and Community Reconstruction. The first one of those passed, the second one never did. Hmm. During this time, Pictou met uh, Nogashik Aquash from Walpole Island, Canada, and they began a relationship. In 1973, Nogashik and Anna traveled together to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota to join AIM activists and Oglala Lakota in what developed as the 71-day occupation of Wounded Knee. The protest followed the failure of an effort of the Oglala Sioux Civil Rights Organization to impeach... Hey! Uh, to impeach tribal president Richard Wilson, whom they accused of corruption and abuse of opponents. It was during this occupation that black civil rights activist Ray Robinson went missing. Keep that in mind because that's going to come back up later. Gotcha. Anime and Nogashik were married there in a native ceremony by Wallace Black Elk, a Lakota elder. Anime took Aquash as her surname, keeping it after the couple later separated. Okay. So this is her second husband, second divorce. Um, Teach their own. Uh, Aunt, uh, Aquash wrote in a letter to her sister at the time, these white people think this country belongs to them. The I whole do. Country, we do. Um, we, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Checkmate. Uh, we do. <laughs> the whole country changed with only a handful of raggedy-ass pilgrims that came over here <laughs> in the 1500s. And it can take a handful of raggedy-ass Indians to do the same. And I intend to be one of those raggedy-ass Indians. Nice. In 1974, Anna Mae Aquash worked on the Red Schoolhouse Project for a culturally-based school uh, for numerous American Indian students who lived in the city. That year, she also participated in the armed occupation at Anasanabe Park in Kenora, Ontario, by Ojibwe activists and AIM supporters. They were protesting treatment of the Ojibwe in Kenora and northwestern Ontario in relation to health, police harassment, education, and other issues, and failures by the National Government's Office of Indian Affairs to improve conditions. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Good. 
1974, it was discovered that Douglas Durham, a, pr a prominent member of AIM, who by then had been appointed as head of security, was in reality an FBI informant. The officials expelled him from AIM in February 1975 at a public press conference. In January 1975, Aquash worked with the Menominee Warrior Society in a month-long armed occupation of the Alexian Brothers Novitiate at Geshem, Wisconsin. The Catholic Abbey had been closed and abandoned, and the Menominee wanted the property returned to the tribe, as land had originally been appropriated by the Alexian Brothers for their mission. Okay. On June 26, June, uh, on June 26, 1975, two FBI agents, Jack Kohler and Robert Williams, traveling in separate and unmarked vehicles, were following up on information that a wanted Oglala uh, named Jimmy Eagle had recently been at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in Oglala, in Oglala, South Dakota, driving a red vehicle. The agents believed that they had spotted Jimmy Eagle and followed him onto the Jumping Bull property. After agents entered the jumping pool compound to serve a warrant for robbery and alleged torture, a fierce shootout broke out uh. with a group of American Indian activists. Several activists fled the scene. Agents Kohler and Williams, as well as Navajo activ activist Joe Killsright Stunts, were killed in the ensuing shootout. That year, Aquash was arrested twice on federal weapons-related charges. Mercury. I'm sorry, listeners. Puppy <laughs> problems. Uh, that year, Aquash was arrested twice on federal wep weapons-related charges, but was quickly released. Her arrest aroused internal AIM suspicions and rumors that Aquash might also be a government informant. According to biographer Johanna Brand, at the spring of 1975, uh, by the spring of 1975, Aquash was recognized and respected as an organizer in her own right, and was taking an increasing role in the decision-making of AIM policies and programs. She was close to AIM leaders Leonard Peltier and Dennis Banks. She and Banks had developed an intimate relationship beginning in the summer of 1974, although he was in a common-law marriage with another woman, Darlene Kamuk Nichols. Aquash's friends say her affair with Banks brought particular resentment from a group of militant, mostly Sioux women who called themselves the Pie Patrol and viewed her as a threat to AIM stability. Jean Roach, a young AIM supporter at the time, described the Pie Patrol to me as, uh, sorry, I'm reading a quote right now. Jean <laughs> uh, Roach, a young AIM supporter at the time, described the Pie Patrol to me as the ones who got uh, on other women's cases for things like wearing a bikini top to the AIM office in Rapid City. They didn't like anime at all, Roach said. Yeah. Uh, by this point, AIM had become a vortex of paranoia. Different crews were badjacketing each other, calling them pigs. So badjacketing is when you accuse somebody of being uh, a police officer or an FBI informant, oh, okay, okay. something like that. Um, or collaborator collaborators with the feds. Um, Melvin Lee Houston said, Someone put a jacket on anime. I'm angry with my brothers and sisters for not stopping it. Then in December of 1975, Anime Aquash vanished. So 1975 was a long year for her. It sounds like a doozy. <laughs> Three months later, in February 24th, uh, 1976, rancher Roger Amiote found uh, Anime Aquash's body by the side of the State Road 73 in the northeast corner of the reservation, about 10 miles from Wanbley, South Dakota. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Her, her remains were revealed when the snow melted in February. In Excuse autopsy, me, what? Hmm? Her remains? Her remains. 
Three months later, February 24, 1976, rancher Roger Amiot found Anna Aquash's body by the side of State Road 73 in the northwest corner of the reservation. Uh. Her remains were revealed when the snow was melted in February. An autopsy was conducted by medical practitioner W.O. Brown, who wrote, It appears that she had been dead for, all, for about ten days, and she had died from frost. At this time, he apparently failed to notice a bullet wound at the base of her skull. Are you fucking serious? Brown concluded that she had died of exposure. She was not Shut identified up. at the time. Shush it, Andrew. At the time, she was a Jane Doe. Uh, her hands were cut off and sent for fingerprinting to the Federal Bureau of Investigation headquarters in Washington, D.C., and her body was buried in South Dakota as a Jane Doe. Ugh. Heartbreaking. On March 10th, 1976, eight days after the burial, Aquash's remains were exhumed to re- due to requests made by the American Indian Movement and her family. AIM arranged for a second autopsy to be conducted by Dr. Gary Peterson, a pathologist from Minneapolis. He found that she, she had been shot in the head by a 32 caliber bullet. Um, it was under the hairline in a shot that traveled upwards. Peterson described it as execution style. Aquash was reinterred in Oglala, Lakota land. Her murder was investigated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, who started the investigation as the death appeared to have taken place on the reservation. The FBI quickly became involved because of its interest in AIM. Excuse me. Um, the agencies discovered that she had been seen at the Pine Ridge Reservation before her disappearance in December 1975. Federal grand juries were called to hear testimony in the case in 1976, 1982, and 1994, but no indictments were made. In 1997, Paul Domain, editor of the independent newspaper News from Indian Country, started regularly publishing articles about the investigation of the murder of Aquash. On 3rd November 1999, Robert Pictow Branscombe, a maternal cousin of Aquash from Canada, and Russell Means, associated with the Denver-based AIM movement, held a press conference in Denver at the Federal Building to discuss the slow progress of the investigation into Aquash's murder. In a telephone interview, um, in a telephone interview with journalist Paul Domain and Harlan McCasote, sorry, Mikosato, journalist Minnie Two Shoes, commented about the importance of Aquash. She believed that Aquash had been snitch jacketed or bad jacketed. Um, she said part of why she was important is because she was very symbolic. She was a hard-working woman. She dedicated her life to the movement, to writing all the injustices she could, and to pick somebody out and launch their little co-intel program on her, to bad jacket her to the point where she ends up dead. Whoever did it, let's look at what the reasons are. You know, she was killed, and let's look at the reasons why it could have been any of us. It could have been me. It could have been... You gotta look at basically thousands of women. You gotta remember that it was mostly women in AIM. It could have been any one of us, and I think that's why it's been so important. Paul Domain, um, who's an Ojibwa Oneida publisher and editor of news from Indian Country, said that day, Anna Mae had a legacy of doing things differently. In 1975, she was alcohol and drug-free, which made her stand out within the movement boldly um, because many people were still using and partying, and there were many things going on in that area. But in 2001, Darlene Kamuk Nichols, formerly Banks' common-law wife in in the 1970s, 
interviewed him while trying to learn more about Aquash's murder. Banks happened to discuss black civil rights activist Ray Robinson, who, remember, mm-hmm. went missing yep. during the, um, the AIM occupation. Uh, Banks said that he had been shot uh, by another AIM officer and bled to death because the group was under siege and had no way to treat him adequately. Banks said he saw Robinson's body and ordered a subordinate, Chris Westerman, to bury him where no one will know. He said Westerman was gone for about five hours and that Robinson had been buried over by the creek. Um, It's your door again. We may need to re-record this episode. No, we're fine. Keep going. It's all great. In January 2002, editorial... uh, In a January 2002 editorial from the news um, from Indian Country... Uh, Domain said that he had met with several people who, who reported hearing Leonard Peltier in 1975 admit to the shootings of two FBI agents uh, at the Pine, Reservation, Pine Ridge Reg- Reservation. They also said that they believe the motive for the death of Aquash allegedly was her knowledge of who shot the two FBI agents and Joe Stunts. Domain did not reveal his sources because of their personal danger and having spoken to him. In an editorial on March 2003, Domain withdrew his support for clemency and the life sentence for Peltier. In response, Peltier sued Domain for libel on May 1, 2003. In 2004, after Arlo Looking Cloud was convicted by jury for the shooting of the two officers, Peltier withdrew the suit. He and Domain uh, reached a settlement. In 2003, a federal grand jury, jury indicted two men for the murder, Fritz Arlo Looking Cloud Glala Lakota and John Graham, uh, aka John Boy Patton, a Southern Tuchone Athabasca. Just let me open your door. No, don't open my bo- my door. He'll get locked in there. <laughs> Although Theda Nelson Clark, Graham's adopted aunt, was also alleged to have been involved in the shootings, she was not indicted. By then, she was in failing health and being cared for in a nursing home. Bruce Ellison, who had been Leonard Peltier's lawyer since the 1970s, invoked his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination and refused to testify at the grand jury hearings on charges against Looking Cloud or his trial in 2004. During the trial, the federal prosecutor referred to Ellison as a co-conspirator in the Aquash case. So those are the details. This runs deep! So, so interesting. It's a lot of information. Um, so just to review... Uh, Anna Mae Aquash went missing in December. She mm-hmm. was found in February. She'd been dead for about 10 days. Um, she was shot in the head, execution style. Uh, two men were um, two men were arrested for a murder. Uh, the claim is that she was murdered because she knew about Leonard Peltier ordering the execution of two, um, two FBI agents um, and her knowledge of the death of Ray Robinson. Yeah. Sound good? Sounds great. Cool. So, theories time. Okay, great. For a long time, it was given among Indians that the FBI engineered Aquash's murder as a way of scaring and destabilizing AIM, says Paul Domain, the editor of News from Indian Country, whose aggressive reporting on the case is often credited with spurring investigators' interest in it. AIM considered itself at war with the federal government and its proxy, the FBI, whose counterintelligence program was devised to monitor and take down the radicals of the new left that the Bureau deemed subversive, including the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Weather Underground, 
This was CoIntel Pro, which I'll be talking about on the next episode as well. Woohoo! You already know what you're talking about on the next episode? Damn it! I do know what I'm talking about on the next episode. I just... Um, in Looking Cloud's trial, the prosecution argued that Ames' suspicion of Aquash stemmed uh, from her having heard Peltier admit to the murders. Other witnesses have testified that once Aquash came under suspicion as an informant, Peltier interrogated her while holding a gun to her head. Peltier and David Hill later had Aquash participate in bomb making so that her fingerprints would be on the bombs. The trio planted the bombs at two power plants on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Darlene Kmuk Nichols, former wife of the AIM leader Dennis Banks, testified that in late 1975, Peltier told them about the shooting of the FBI agents. He was talking to a small group of AIM activists who were fugitives from law enforcement. They included Nichols, her sister Bernie Nichols, Nichols' husband Dennis Banks, and Aquash, among several others. Nichols testified that Peltier said, The motherfucker was begging for his life, but I shot him anyway. Bernie Nichols Lafferty gave the same account of Peltier's statement. John Trudell testified that Dennis Bankshaw told him that the body of anime Aquash had been found before it was officially identified. Mm-mm. Dennis Banks wrote in his autobiography, Ojibwa Warrior, that Trudell had told him that the body uh, that they found was that of Aquash. Banks wrote that he did not even know until then that Aquash had been killed or was missing. God. Together with federal and state investigators, Aquash's daughters Denise and Debbie believe that the high-ranking AIM leaders ordered the death of their mother due to fears of being an informant. They support the continued investigation. Uh, Denise Pictow Maloney is the executive director of the Indigenous Women for Justice, a group she founded to support justice for her mother and other Native women. Mm-hmm. In 2004 interview, Pictow Maloney said that her mother was killed by AIM members who thought she knew too much. She knew what was happening in California. She knew where the money was coming from to pay for the guns. She knew the plans, but more than anything, she knew about the killings. Mm -hmm. In 1977, Leonard Peltier's defense attorney introduced the the possibility of someone unknown to the tribe or the movement as being the true culprit, calling this hypothetical murderer Mr. X. The theory implicated Choctaw activist Harry Hill. Harry Hill's ex-wife, Thelma Rios Conroy, claimed that Hill was Mr. X and that he had been working as a law enforcement agent at the time he murdered Anna Mae. Both of these claims, that Harry Hill was a cop or that he was quote-unquote true killer of Anna Mae, are disputed by the American Indian movement. After the conviction of Licking Cloud in 2004, Aquash's family had her remains exhumed. They were transported to her homeland of Nova Scotia for reinternment on June 21st at Indian Brook Reservation in Shubanakade. They held appropriate Mi'kmaq ceremonies and celebrated the work and life of the activists. Uh, her family and supporters have held an annual anniversary ceremony in Anime's um, honor ever since. Snap, crackle, pop. So that was a long one. Yeah, but a good one. <laughs> and it was a lot. It is a lot. So who do you think killed anime? Well, they really strongly hit towards the aim people, so... Mercury. Mercury, who do you think killed anime? He agrees with me. <laughs> you think it was probably aim? Yeah. You don't believe in the mysterious Mr. X? No. No. No name. Not gonna buy it. <laughs> Mercury, who do you think killed Mr. X? Or who do you think killed <laughs> anime? Yeah. Was it the uh, the American Indian movement? 
was it Harry Hill? Um, so that was the long and sordid tale of anime aquash. I'm going to give him the bone. How about that? That will probably keep him quiet for a little while. Who do you think killed him? I think it was probably Leonard Peltier. Or someone working for him. Okay, eat some more chew toys tomorrow. Enjoy. Puppy break. If you okay. have a puppy, take a break right now and go up on them. <laughs> All right. That will distract him for two hours. Yeah, if uh, Leonard Peltier had really told people in 1975 that he had ordered the head of the two police officers and knew where Ray Robinson's uh, body was yeah. buried, I think that Anime Aquash probably, you know, had all of that information. And if he was like paranoid, thought that she was going to talk because he thought Just that. Just get rid of her. If he thought that he, uh, she was a snitch or that she was a fed. But snitches get stitches, not bullets <laughs> on their head. We all know that. Um, Just I, joking. <laughs> historically, not so much, but historically yeah, more <laughs> executions than, than stitches. Um, so, what do you have for us today? Okay, I'm glad you asked, Andrew. Well, I'm doing a lady, but I'm switching up onto something I'm not familiar. I mean, not in the best realm, but. And we're talking about an artiste. An artiste. A French artiste. I'm glad I have my wine. From the, yes, and we're drinking our, well, sure, French. <laughs> um, wine. Um, and this is all to do with the, in the mid-1700s okay. to early 1800s. So I'm talking about Elizabeth Vigie Le Brun. She call her call her Elizabeth. Vigie. Is that how you pronounce it? I think so. That's how I pronounce it. Elizabeth Vigie Le Brun. So, she Elizabeth oh. was born in Paris on April sixteenth, seventeen fifty five. Okay. She's the daughter of a portrait and fan painter, um, which is Louis Vigie, from whom she received her first instruction. Her mother, Jean, was a hairdresser. So, the, in 1760, at the ripe old age of five, she entered a convent, <laughs> where she remained until 1766. So, 12. Did, uh, did Hamlet tell her to get me to a nunnery? And she just, yep. Okay. She said, yeah, we'll okay. do. Okay. She said, wee oui, wee. Oui. <laughs> um, hon, hon, hon. <laughs> her father died when she was 12 years old. So in um, 1768, her mother married a wealthy jeweler, Jacques Francois, um, and Elizabeth uh, directly stated her feelings about her stepfather later in a memoir, stating, I hated this man even more so since he made use of my father's personal possessions. He wore his clothes just as they were without altering them to fit his figure, which is really fucking creepy if you think about it. This guy has some issues. Yeah. During this period, Elizabeth benefited from the advice of, um, like, three artists whose influence is evident in her portrait of her younger brother, Etienne Vigie. By the time she was in her early tweens, Elizabeth was already painting portraits professionally. Nice. What were you doing in your early tweens? Um, not painting portraits. Exactly, me either. <laughs> After her studio was seized for her practicing without a license, which I guess 
you need a license to yeah. practice painting. She applied to the Academy de Saint Luc, which unwittingly exhibited her work in their salon. salon. In 1774, she was made a member of the Academy. So, we're going to jump two years. In January of 1776, she married Jean Baptiste Pierre Le Brun. So she's 21 at this point. Jean Baptiste. Such a French name. It's, isn't it? God. Um, he was a painter and an art dealer. So Elizabeth began exhibiting her work at their home in Paris. And the salons that she held there supplied her with the many new and important contacts. Her husband's great-great-uncle was Charles Le Brun, the first director of the French, French Academy under Louis XIV. And then Elizabeth painted portraits of many of the nobility, which we'll get to in a hot second. Okay. Um, if we cut four years later, so she's 25 now, mm-hmm. on, in February 1780, she gave birth to a daughter named Jean-Julie Louise, whom she called Julie or nicknamed Burnett, which I think is cute. Okay. I think that would be insulting. Brunette? Yeah. Hey, Brunette. Yeah, I guess if you're like a redhead and someone just calls you Ginger, like, no, that's not my name. But this is her only child, so it's not like I forget your name, but I remember all the other children's names. That's true. I don't know. All right, so in 1787, she caused a minor, some say minor, some say major, public scandal when her... This is the title of her portrait. Self-portrait with her daughter, Julie, um, was exhibited at the Saloon of 1787, showing her smiling and open mouth, which was in direct, um, con- which is in direct contravention of traditional painting conventions going back to antiquity. The court gossip sheets commented, and quote, an affection with artists art lovers and persons of taste have been united in condemning and which finds no precedent among the ancients in that smiling um elizabeth uh shows her teeth in the light of this and another self-portrait that she did someone dismissed her as being narcissistic stating madame vigie lebrun never wearied of putting her smiling maternity on her canvases so she she calls an uproar for sh- for showing her teeth. Nice, scandalous. Yeah, seriously. I saw an ankle. Yeah, ooh, we'll get to that too. <laughs> <laughs> but she, was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I remember. I just remember seeing the headline "scandal." I'm like, ooh, what? And it says showing her teeth in a painting. I reread that like three times to make sure I was reading it right. <laughs> that, no, that is literally it. So if you're. Um, what year is this? 1780. 1787. So if you're a 1780s era uh, portraitist, uh, don't show your teeth. No, don't. Don't do it. Apparently that's uncanny. So do they all just smile like this? Or just in paintings? I'm not really sure. Well, I think in the... In, because you had to sit there for so long as you were get, getting your portrait taken, a lot yeah. of people just uh, relaxed. Stoic, and were the, yeah. The stoic, you know. Whatever you're most comfortable doing. Yeah. So... That didn't, like, stop her from becoming famous. So as her career blossomed, Elizabeth um, was actually granted paintings by Marie Antoinette, our famous person. Let them eat cake. You can have your cake and eat it. Can you, though? Uh, yep. <laughs> um, 
You can't have your cake and eat it. Thank you. That's that's the saying, yeah. That's the legit <laughs> saying. Um, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Exactly. Which makes more sense than the misconstrued one that we have now. <laughs> I love how someone like tries to explain that. Like, no, but you... Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, I'm already on my second glass of wine. I gotta like, slow it down. Um, so... Uh, she painted more than 30 portraits of Marie Antoinette and her family, leading to the common perception that she was the official portress of Marie Antoinette. Um, at the Salon of 1783, Elizabeth exhibited Marie Antoinette in a muslin, muslin dress, muslin, yeah. sometimes called Marie Antoinette en Gaulle, in which the queen chose to be shown in a simple, informal white cotton garment. The resulting scandal was prompted by both the informality and the Queen's decision to be shown in that way. But, as we all know, um, it was evidently an attempt to improve the Queen's image by making her more relatable to the public. Look, I'm just like you. (laughs) Yeah, I walk around in a muslin dress. Yeah. Um, In the hopes of countering the bad press and negative judgments that the Queen had recently received, hence the cake eating and having it. Um, the portrait shows the queen at home in the palace of Versailles, engaged in her official function as the mother of the king's children, but also suggests Marie Antoinette's uneasy identity as a foreign-born queen, whose maternal role was her only true function under Salic law. Salic? I have no idea. Doesn't matter. Under law. Okay. Because I did see that the Marie Antoinette movie with, what's her name? Grace, Katie, She Allie. was in the original Spider-Man. Oh, um. Why can't I, I see her face? Let's just look at Kristen Dunst. Kristen Dunst. Thank you. Or Kirsten Dunst. Or, um, and it was, I mean, it shows her not in the best light, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I think it's hard to show Marie Antoinette in a great light. But it does really... It did really focus on how she was just thrown into this marriage, into this whole new country, into this whole new world that she knew nothing about. Which is true. Okay. But her only role, her her only actual role was to bear children for the king. Which she did. Not that that would matter, which we'll find out soon enough. Or if you know history, you know that won't matter. <laughs> um, so, on in May of 1783, Elizabeth was received as a member of the Academic Royal de Pinture et de Sculpture. That's my great French speaking right there. She was one of only 15 women to be granted full membership in the Academy between... 1648 and 1793, that's 145 years, 15 women. Great. Also, asterisk, her rival, Adelaide Labille-Gillard, was admitted on the same day. So that's two women out of the 143, 145 years on the same day. Elizabeth was initially refused on the grounds that her husband was an art dealer. Scandalous. Um, But eventually the Academy was overruled by an order from Louis XVI because... Her good friend, Marie Antoinette, put considerable pressure on her husband on behalf of her portrait. Hashtag Elizabeth. feminism. That's right. 
As her reception piece, um, Elizabeth submitted an allegorical painting, Peace Bringing Back Abundance, instead of a portrait. As a consequence, the Academy did not place her work within the standard category of painting, either history or portrait. Elizabeth's membership in the Academy dissolved after the French Revolution because female female academicians 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 were abolished because ladies can't do anything. Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag feminism. Yeah. (laughs) So, in October of 1789, after the arrest of the royal family and kind of during the middle of the French Revolution, since Elizabeth was kind of like, kind of knew the royal family, Uh. people knew about that. She fled France with her young daughter, Julie. Julie. Her husband, who remained in Paris, claimed that Elizabeth went to Italy to instruct and improve herself. (laughs) Really? That's a a great euphemism for fleeing. Isn't it? Uh, if I ever flee, can you say that's why I left? To instruct and improve re- myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she did actually fear for her own safety. So she was gone for 12 years. And in those 12 years, she lived in Italy, Austria, Russia, and Germany. So I'll dabble a little bit in some of those places. Okay. So when she was in Italy, Elizabeth was elected to the Academy in Parma and an Academy in Rome. In Naples, she painted portraits of Maria Carolina of Austria, which was actually the sister of Marie Antoinette. And then, um, so, this Maria and her eldest four living children, Maria, Teresa, Francesco, and Luisa, and Maria Christina. The only reason I'm naming those names is because Elizabeth later recalled that Luisa... So I can't believe I'm saying this. Quote, was extremely ugly and pulled such faces that I was most reluctant to finish her portrait. So I will really want to know more about that. And just as Louisa was like, wanted to be a little shit and be like, I'm not posing for you. I'm going to be really stupid and make a weird face and stick up my tongue and cross my eyes. It was probably the, um, the was. Harrison Ford and um, Blade Runner thing where he like acted he did the uh, narration voices really poorly Poorly, so they wouldn't use it so they wouldn't use it and then they used it anyway that's probably what happened oh yeah that's right I remember you and Cameron talking about that I don't want my portrait taken so I'm just gonna make a funny face and they won't use it and then they used it Mm -hmm. alright so then in Russia where she was there from actually 1795 to 1801 she was received by the nobility and painted numerous aristocrats, including the last king of Poland, Stanislav August Poniatowski, and members of the family of the Catherine the Great. Although the French um, aesthetic was widely admired in Russia, there remained various cultural differences as to what was deemed acceptable. Here we go. Catherine was not initially happy with Elizabeth's portrait of her granddaughters, Elena and Alexandria Polvona, Due to the amount of bare skin, the short-sleeved gowns revealed. <gasps> In order to please the empress, Elizabeth added sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, this tactic seemed effective in pleasing Catherine as she agreed to sit herself for Elizabeth, although Catherine died of a stroke before this work was due to begin. Um, so that's unfortunate. 
So uh, she said, yeah, we'll, like, schedule in two weeks, and then within that two weeks she had a stroke, unfortunately. Dead monarchs aren't really that sad, though. Cheers. Drink. <sighs> Soon we'll take over the world. Don't <laughs> I shed no tears for dead monarchs. <laughs> I'm sorry. While in Russia... Uh, Elizabeth was made a member of the Academy of Fine Arts of St. Petersburg. Much to Elizabeth's dismay, her daughter Julie married a man, whose name I'm not going to pronounce, who was the secretary to the director of the Imperial Theaters of St. Petersburg. It doesn't say why, so I'm not really sure. Also, it started saying that after a... um, After this, it starts talking about her husband as her ex-husband, and it doesn't go into... I mean, since her husband stayed there and she left, and it was 12 years. So, I don't know what happened, but now they're exes and they're not on great terms, which, whatever. Well, they they didn't really have divorce back then, so... It's true. If they went to different countries, it was probably as... Yeah, well, this says, after a a sustained campaign by her ex-husband and other family members to have her name removed from the list of counter-revolutionary... Oh, yeah, sorry. So her ex-husband actually was helpful in this situation. I'm sorry. I didn't do that. <laughs> but it says ex-husband. I'm just confused about... Yeah, he's like, I'll stay here, live right. my life. Yeah. You go get away from this since you're kind of closely tied to the right. royal family. So her ex-husband was trying to get her name removed from the list of counter Yes, charities. yes. Okay. So that she could come back. So they were not on bad terms. I totally lied to you. <laughs> Hashtag armchair apocrypha. Hashtag armchair apocrypha. Um, Hashtag wine. Yes. So, after sustained campaign by her ex-husband and other family members to have her name removed from the list of counter-revolutionary imageries, Elizabeth was finally able to return to France in January of 1802. So, in her later years, um, it doesn't really talk too much about the next 30 years of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to have enough time to research into all the articles just kind of end there, or even before then, because the whole big thing was the scandal with the teeth and... Marie Antoinette. Um, but in her later years, Elizabeth purchased a house and divided her time between um, Louvicinus, which is where she bought her house in Paris. Okay. She actually died in Paris in March of 1842. So that's a whole 40 years of, like, just not anything we know about. Um, she was 86 years old. And she did keep painting, but I think she was just, like, a low-profile... You know, she wouldn't make too much of a name, or yeah. she didn't need to. Well, at this point, she probably had enough patrons. Yeah, she exactly. Could just, like, she could just paint for aristocrats and the wealthier people. Hint, hint. To be an aristocrat? <laughs> no, hint, hint for patrons. Oh, oh, oh. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> it does say between 1835 and 1837, so before, like, the last 10 years of her life, um... Or before the last 10 years of her life. Um, when she was already in her 80s, Elizabeth published her memoirs in three volumes. So if I had enough fucking time, I would read those three volumes and give you a more elaborate. But I wonder how much of those three volumes have dedicated to her last 40 years. It would be really cool if like, yeah. the last volume was, because she lived to be 80, so that's literally half of her fucking life. Yeah. Um, so when they hit about the internet, they just highlight your best parts. Yeah. 
It's like, no, they lived in it. Like, you know that so many more interesting things happened or just funny anecdotes that would probably be, that are in her memoirs but aren't here. <laughs> also, would her memoirs even be translated into English by now? Who knows? They probably are. They probably are because she wrote it in fucking 1835. Yeah. There's got to be, like, um, arts history students who had to read her memoirs. See, what the fuck? I didn't see this one. Let me see if I can get to it real fast. <laughs> research break real quick. Yes. You've had a puppy break and a research break, so. How do you spell a guillotine? G-U-I? Yeah. L-L. These are nice, nice portraits. I, you know they do look really pretty. She had an act for it. Where's the first one? Okay, I'm done. It's not real thing. <laughs> um, but yeah. So. Rachel just hit a paywall for uh, anybody who's curious about what happened. <laughs> the New York Times was like, nope, you need to pay to read more of this. They're lies. <laughs> but that is Elizabeth Louis <laughs> 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 But it sounded like she had a pretty cool, interesting life. Yeah. And her paintings do look really, like, they're really nice portraits. And it, oh, that's what I wanted to show you. If you see the painting that caused the scandal with her and her child. With the teeth? You don't even see the fucking teeth. I swear you don't. It shows it, or lack thereof. Oh, where, where'd she go? Was, we're just gonna... <laughs> Elizabeth Vigie Lebrun. Vigie. Vigie. I feel like I say it like that, but who knows? They're really great paintings. Mm-hmm. Um. But. Is that the one? Yes. Do you yeah. see her teeth? Barely. Kind of. You gotta put that on the website. How big was this, though? How big was the portrait? Oh, I don't know if it tells. Because, like, on a computer screen, obviously, I can only kind of see them. But if it's, like... Um, you can see a tooth right there. <laughs> but if it's, like, the size of our TV, um, then you could definitely see it clearer. Okay. I'm just saying. No, I completely agree with you. It's It's not reasonable at all, but... And there's the sleeves she added <laughs> for the Russian royalty. You can, you can totally tell that this is a later edition. <laughs> it just matches like, the dresses. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm just looking at how they bend because it looks like that she just painted their arms like mm-hmm. sleeves. Yep. That's great. So yeah. Fascinating. I found it interesting. Vigie Lebrun. Vigie Lebrun. All right. Uh, is that all that we have for today? Yes, that's all I got about Vigile Lebrun. Mercury, do you have anything to plug? He totally knows his name. <laughs> uh, Mercury does not have anything to plug, apparently. Uh, he's enjoying his bone. Yeah. Um, Rachel, you have anything you want to plug? No, I'm good. No. All right. Um, 
Well, as always, buy my books. Uh, I've got um, In the Shadows of My Mind and uh, Red Hats and Black Masks up on the website. Um, I'm in the process of writing the sequel to Red Hats and Black Masks. Um, I'm at 27,000 words. Um, so that'll hopefully be hopefully be released in January like the last one was. Um, check out our musicians, uh, Joshua Paul Brooks and Chet Osman on the website. Um, we've got their music up on um, SoundCloud and WordPress. Um, check out Katie's artwork on the website. Uh, she takes commissions. Um, if you're interested in becoming a patron, uh, we've got our Patreon up. Uh, uh -huh. It's Absinthe Activism Arts. Um, if you want to follow us on Facebook, we're Absinthe Activism Arts. Um, if you feel like following us on Twitter, we're Absinthe Act Art. Uh, but we have never used our Twitter. <laughs> One <so>. day. <laughs> um, just be just be aware that we will probably not tweet, uh, but we might tweet at you if you send us something. Um, if you feel like getting in touch with us, it's absintheactivismarts at gmail.com. Um, is there anything else? That's good. Okay. Uh, we'll get out of here. Um, it's late, so we're probably going to go to bed soon. Yep. <laughs> um, let Mercury enjoy his bone. Uh, and that's all for this week. Until next time, listeners. Mm -hmm.